And so everything that we do is from a place of strength. What is good in people's lives? What are they already doing? What's already working? And then how do we give them credit for that? How do we build on what's good in their lives? And I think that's just such a more powerful and dignified way to do the work. And it's also more effective. It's also more effective at the end of the day. Hey y'all, welcome to the Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast brought to you by Second Day. My name is Maria Mathien and every other week I'm sitting down with people who are building careers working on our community's biggest challenges. And we're using this space to not only prove that it is possible to build a career that allows you to do good for the world and do well for yourself, but to also demystify how to make that happen for social impact job seekers out there. This week, I am really excited to be sitting down with Elena Fairley. Elena is the program director at Mission Asset Fund, where she oversees MAPS award-winning programs that help people become visible, active, and successful in their financial lives. She has been with MAPS since 2015, originally coming on board to support the expansion of MAPS National Partner Network. Prior to MAPS, she served as Director of Learning and Partnerships at Prospera, a nonprofit partnering with women to build cooperatively owned businesses. She has served as co-chair of the Lending Circles Partner Advisory Council and as a board member of Prospera. She graduated from Colorado College with a degree in international political economy and has an MBA from UC Berkeley. Elena, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to have this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So just to sort of talk about the really interesting breadth your career has already had. You've worked in a lot of different places. As we mentioned, you've worked in policy, you've worked uh, in building co-ops, and now you're the director of programs for an organization that provides zero interest loans. We'll kind of dig into all of those different pieces uh, in more detail. But for me, the through line really seems to be working on creating more economic mobility and access for communities. So I'd love to sort of hear in your own words, was that the intentional through line? Did you just find yourself naturally drawn to that work? Tell us a little bit about that kind of theme in your career so far. It was intentional. And I think like a lot of people in this space, the decision to do this work was, it was both intentional and also personal. So, you know, I came to this work through lived experience, knowing financial struggle. And I think anyone who's ever known that understands it's a weight. It's a weight that follows you everywhere. And it affects everything from, you know, your health to your passions and everything in between. And, you know, I just remember arriving at college and just feeling like it was such a institution full of privilege and, you know, kind of grappling with that and being drawn towards classes and political science and economics, just to unpack really why so much inequality existed and and why that was the case. And, and, you know, I just remember like sitting in classes thinking like, how could you not try to contribute to, you know, what really feels like one of the biggest challenges that we have today. And I think at the end of the day, I just firmly believe that no one in this country should ever have to experience poverty ever. And that that's, uh, that's a decision that we as a society can make, right? Like we can decide, do we want to accept the notion that, that we will have poverty or, or reject it. And so that's certainly been a through line in just wanting to do my small part to creating the conditions where everyone can live a life free of systemic barriers. I love that. And one of the things I want to actually talk about sort of later in our conversation is 
as you were speaking, it it spurred this idea that in social impact work, in the nonprofit work or, or whatever way you're engaging in social impact, there is this uh, very toxic assumption that you should accept less pay because you care enough about the work that you should be willing to be underpaid for your efforts or sometimes unpaid for your efforts and how that speaks to this fundamental misunderstanding of how economic access is part of social change and social justice. So I definitely want to get into that. But before we go down that rabbit hole, because it will be a rabbit hole for me, um, can we level set a little bit and sort of in your words, maybe you can explain what it means to work in economic mobility and access. I think particularly for younger listeners, they might hear, oh, that sounds like I need a degree in economics. But what is your definition of working in the space and the kind of work that's happening here? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I think, you know, first of all, I think the field of economic mobility is huge and it's large and it's varied and um, there's a lot there. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. Like this work has to be layered because you have to think about why this, you know, this need exists in the first place. And you have to unpack that, like, well, we have a really long history of oppression and white supremacy in this country that has created deeply entrenched and interconnected systems that perpetuate it. So in order to come up with solutions to, to address that, your solutions have to be also interconnected, also multi-layered. And so just to bring that down to a practical level, I think that oftentimes economic mobility looks at income and wealth. So if you think about on the income side, there's workforce development programs, there's upskilling, there's access to higher education. On the wealth side, there's a whole field of what's called asset building, which is thinking about building assets in home ownership and business ownership. And then, you know, kind of underneath those sort of more common channels, there's so much more. So there's also, you know, thinking about fighting for a fair tax code, fighting for a stronger social safety net, fighting for paid family leave, for job protection, you know, also thinking about reducing incarceration rates because incarceration just absolutely devastates, um, or it can, it can really devastate someone's, you know, future economic prospects. And then also thinking about like helping people naturalize and become citizens and the, the positive effect that that can have on, on someone's economic mobility. So there's just, there's so many angles that you can approach this work from. And, and then there's the actual practice, right? So when you think about what you're doing day to day, that could look like policy advocacy where you're doing research and lobbying lawmakers. On the under, other end of the spectrum, that could look like direct service work. You could be working one-on-one with people doing financial coaching or job training. And then there's a whole host of of opportunities sort of in between those two spectrums. You know, you could do what I do, which is, you know, design and manage programs. You could do capacity building work. There's so many different avenues. And I feel like if this is really work you're you're really passionate about, you're going to have gifts that you can contribute um, because the field is so broad. Yeah, I think that this theme, which is so important in social impact in general, is all of these issues are deeply intersectional, right? So sometimes I'll have people who say, well, I really want to work in access to healthcare. I need to go get an MPH or I need to go get a certain type of degree. And we know that access to healthcare is more than just being in front of a doctor. It's education, it's access to resources, it's access to proper housing and food and nutrition. And so I love that you mentioned how deeply intersectional and deeply rooted economic mobility and access is. And 
kind of starting at the beginning of your journey in this work, when you were an undergrad, you have said that you were convinced that politics and policy would be the lever of change that you wanted to to commit yourself to. What was it like as kind of your first foray into social change work more formally? Like, did it live up to your expectations? Why or why not? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. And (laughs) I guess the short answer is it did not. And I think it was a classic example of having a really, really strong mission alignment, but it just wasn't quite the right function for me. And I think I figured that out pretty quickly, which also speaks to just the power of like trying things on. Sometimes you just have to try things on to know, you know, after I graduated, I did a one-year fellowship at a progressive public policy center and pretty quickly realized that research and policy advocacy wasn't quite the right fit for me. And um, just to just share a little color around that. At the time, I was working on state-level policy in Colorado, and the Colorado House and Senate were split between the two parties. So nothing was getting through. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And it just felt like one big dead end, which, you know, in retrospect, I look back on that, and I can actually see how the research and the work that I did contributed to later wins. Um, I, in particular, worked on one bill related to anti-discrimination in the workplace that was three or four years later passed. And my research, I would like to think, was a small part in that passage. But at the time, it really felt like I was coming up against a wall and realized that um, in terms of what was you know, right for me on a day-to-day level, I wanted to be closer to community, you know, be closer to the work happening on the ground, do more like collaborative work, building programs that would really impact people um, in a more just real tangible way. I want to like triple underline this point of you can believe in the mission of an organization and also know that in terms of like the day-to-day function of your job there or how it will play out, it can also not be right for you. Both of those things can be true. So just because someone is working on an issue you care about, it's also worth thinking about what does that look like for my day to day? And will I burn out? Will I be frustrated? Like, will I want to leave immediately? Because that's not good for anybody, especially the mission and yourself. So just want to like triple underline this point for people because I think it's such an important one. Um, So you mentioned, yeah, wanting to get closer to communities and you ended up at uh, Prospera. Tell us a little bit about what that organization did and how did you find that job? So Prospera is an an amazing organization and they partner with low-income and immigrant women and support them in building worker-owned cooperative businesses. So for those of you who are less familiar, these are businesses where every single person working there is a co-owner who shares in the profits and has a voice and a vote in key business decisions. So, you know, I think it's, it just has tremendous power to provide a really transformative opportunity for folks. And I, I found the job actually through AmeriCorps. I came out to the Bay Area, had a friend who had had a really positive experience with AmeriCorps and, you know, looked at opportunities available and, you know, just immediately felt really drawn towards Prospera's mission and just immediately bought in there. And, and you know, I think... There are definitely pros and cons to AmeriCorps, and you know we could <laughs> we can have a conversation around that as well. Not a perfect program, but you know I think for me it was it was a helpful entry point. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts there because it's something that people obviously ask me all the time. My thoughts on the AmeriCorps model and 
I would love to hear in your own words, particularly you mentioned at the beginning of the episode that you have known financial struggle in your life and you've known the kind of burden that that can bear. And AmeriCorps does not offer a lot of financial compensation um, through their program. So curious sort of how you thought through that and what are some of your reflections kind of looking back on that experience? Yeah. So, you know, I think that, you know, frankly, (laughs) there should be more programs like Second Day um, out there. I don't think that anyone should have to live in poverty or close to poverty to do social justice work at the end of the day. And I also think that, you know, as a sector, we need to think about the talent pipeline that we're building and think about, you know, who has the luxury of stepping in to low paid or unpaid positions. And it varies. It's not, you know, one dimensional, but especially with unpaid work, it's, it tends to be people with privilege. So we have to think about that pipeline really, really carefully. And, you know, I think that there is a growing movement in the nonprofit world to make sure that like positions are paid and hopefully paid well. I believe that's really, really important. You know, I think the decision to do AmeriCorps is, you know, at the end of the day, it's a really personal one. I think I got some great experience out of it. I was able to swing it. I was able to make it work. I was lucky to work for an organization that provided a housing stipend, which made it all possible. But, you know, it's no easy feat. I have all kinds of creative strategies for making that that work. Yeah, I think I think it speaks to the fact that the social impact space still comes from incredibly privileged culture, right? Because it has been a cycle of people who are able to take unpaid internships, stepping into these organizations and eventually sort of being in leadership roles and decision-making roles, that it's really easy to separate this idea of, oh, all of the money should go directly to programs, to direct service work, and we need to minimize how much is going to our staff and thinking about the implications of that. And it, you know, I'm curious if this resonates given the nature of the work you do, but that speaks to a fundamental misunderstanding of the role that economic access plays in social justice, right? I think I was having a really interesting conversation with someone about uh, an organization that had reached out to us that focuses on making home ownership more accessible to folks. And it's a for-profit company, but is focused on this particular mission. And I, in my mind, my immediate place went, wealth creation is social justice, right? Making asset creation accessible to folks who typically might not have that information or those resources, um, or even just like culturally people assume that they can't own homes that is so toxic and really feeds into this vicious cycle. And so I think it just, it speaks to this very deeply rooted challenge we face in this space of the role that money plays in driving social change. So just kind of curious your reactions and and what you feel needs to change to, you know, dismantle some of these ideas. Oh, definitely. I mean, You know, it's a sad reality that, you know, sometimes in, you know, in this space, in the economic mobility space, the people who are doing the social change work, like employed at organizations are sometimes, unfortunately, experiencing financial instability in their lives. I think there needs to be a a recognition of how, how wrong that is. And I think, you know, I guess one piece of advice I would have is, you know, when you're looking for a role in this space, you know, look for an organization that has a really strong commitment to the well-being of their staff, because the sector can't survive 
on martyrs. It's not possible and it's not right. And I think that I'd like to believe that there's a positive change happening where, you know, nonprofits and organizations in the space are really thinking about like, how do we take care of our own? Like, how do we make sure our staff are able to show up from a place where they have security, they have stability and and can really bring their, their best selves to the work. So I think, yeah, I think that's um, something I feel really passionate about and, and hope that, you know, we'll continue to see positive movement in that direction. Yeah. I'm curious, you mentioned that even in your industry, which is so focused on creating economic mobility and access that even in your industry, that this is a pattern. What do you think the disconnect is between leadership who work in the space of creating economic mobility and then not paying staff fairly? Like, I don't know if that's even a, a, a question you can answer, but I'm curious what you think, where you think that disconnect comes from. I think you named it. You know, I think you named it. I think there's a pressure to channel all the money towards like quote unquote programs. You know, oftentimes that stems from pressures from donors or funders that may not understand the the realities of the work and are looking to, you know, keep that overhead low when in reality the, you know, at the end of the day, the oftentimes it really is the people at organizations that are the levers of change. Like they are the ones making the magic happen. Like that is the, the you know, the core heart of the programs. And I think, you know, like I mentioned, I think there's been a movement, you know, pushing back on that notion and saying that, that, you know, donors and funders need to trust that communities and, you know, organizations closest to the ground know how to spend their dollars most effectively and need to have more trust-based philanthropy. I think there's some, yeah, really positive trends in that direction and, and also just positive trends in the nonprofit world about, you know, being more transparent about salary expectations and, you know, naming that upfront, creating more equitable pay structures so I think there, there are really healthy movements addressing these issues. And it's also something that, you know, something to look out for in, you know, in a future role, you know, asking tough questions about how, how do you address, um, you know, pay equity in your organization? How are you thinking about where your dollars are allocated? So I think that um, hopefully that, that continues. Yeah, I agree. I, I definitely think that there is a shift in the narrative happening more and more openly and just to kind of close out this part of the conversation, I think to your point, if you are looking for a job, I often hear people afraid to negotiate salary, afraid to ask those tough questions because they think they're going to scare off whoever they're talking to and, and that sort of insecurity. And I would say one, it's very standard to ask questions, to ask about salary, those sorts of things. And if the organization you're talking to does balk at you asking questions and doesn't like they don't react well, that's probably a red flag that they don't care about their staff, that they don't believe in that kind of transparency or access to information. So that actually might answer some questions you didn't realize it was answering if they don't want to um, even go there. So just some food for thought for folks. I think kind of moving back to to your work and, and the things that you've been doing. So with Prospera, one of the things that we had talked about when you were working there is that you were able to kind of expand your role to support communities all over the country who wanted to replicate this co-op model. And I'm curious, this is something I think about constantly when you're thinking about community work and the fact that we are moving to more national scale of programming, especially in a world of COVID. What advice do you have or, or insight do you have for serving communities that you are not 
even like geographically near, or you don't have that kind of proximate experience with, how do you balance bringing in expertise and then also ensuring that communities continue to have ownership and control and know what's best for them? How do you strike that balance? It's such a good question. And I think it's honestly a question that anyone doing social change work should be asking themselves frequently. And, you know, I think, I think there's a couple ideas that I would point to. So one is just really getting comfortable with the notion of cultural competence versus cultural humility, really recognizing the fact that, you know, cultural competence is not easily learned. Um, And your, you know, your lived experience is, you know, it is what it is and at times may have limitations. And so really adopting a notion of cultural humility. So being really self-aware and saying like, I don't know what I don't know and recognizing who are the real experts and, and really, you know, leaning on that heavily and not overstepping, not injecting your own bias into the work. Um, I just think that's, that's so critical to, you know, constantly be asking yourself. And then I think the other just really key theme is, is just one of partnership. So that has been such a common theme of all of the work that I've done is always, always, it's always been done in partnership. So, you know, what that meant, you know, at Prospera, you know, taking that down a, a more practical level is we, you know, in my time there, you know, I would create tools and templates, resources, trainings. I would create all these practical, this like sort of toolkit suites that other practitioners could adopt. But I would, you know, in everything that I did, I tried to carve out space for this is a, you know, a best practice that we have found in our context and our community. And here are all the ways that it can and has been adapted to meet the needs of, of other different communities. And I think that's critical. You know, I think that it's important in this work, you know, not to constantly be like recreating the wheel, replicating work that's already been done. Like we all need to information share. We need to build on each other's best practices. But we also need to recognize that there are no cookie cutters. There are no cookie cutter solutions in social justice. It does not exist. It's, you know, it's a complete fallacy. And all work has to be really modified at the local scale to meet the needs of the communities that live there. Yeah, I think we really, really crave silver bullet solutions in this work. And it is the biggest thing is just to let that idea go, right? That there's no such thing. One of the things that we really think about at Second Day, people push us all the time on why don't we work with more community colleges? And our response is we need to find the right partners. We understand the four-year college-university context really well. And even then, obviously, there's huge variance across the different campuses we partner with. But we know that a quote-unquote, typical college, uh, community college student is really different. And to come in with our existing curriculum and our existing approach and just think we can copy-paste it is wrong and will not serve anybody effectively. I think it's really interesting having conversations on our end with folks who push us to expand, but don't think about the way to do that most effectively. They're just trying to maximize number of people served, but not how do we be thoughtful context to context and actually make sure the impact is as powerful as it can be in all of those different spaces. So it sounds like partnerships is a lot of what you do now. Uh, You transitioned to MAF and have had quite an impressive run there so far. Let's take a step back. What is MAF? What do y'all do? Why do you really believe in the type of work that you're doing when it comes to economic mobility? 
Yeah. So we are, we're a nonprofit organization and we're on a mission to help people be visible, active, and successful in their financial lives. So we work with a lot of communities that have been excluded from the financial mainstream. We work with a lot of immigrant communities and um, we're most known for providing zero interest loans that help people build credit. So, you know, why, why do I believe in the work? I think it's, you know, I think it's really powerful. I think that one of the things that makes this work so powerful is that we, in everything that we do, use a strengths-based approach. So, you know, this runs counter to, you know, what we might talk about as like a deficit approach where you you look at a community and you're like, oh, everything's wrong. Like, how do we fix all these problems? Every, you know, everything's so broken. And we just decided that wasn't our path. And we didn't want to to do that sort of deficit focused work. And so everything that we do is from a place of strength. So we, you know, we ask the question, what is good in people's lives? What are they already doing? What's already working? And then how do we give them credit for that? How do we build on what's good in their lives? And I think that's just such a more powerful and dignified way to do the work. And it's also more effective. It's also more effective at the end of the day. You know, I think the impact that you know we've had is it's powerful we've helped many you know many thousands of people get banked for the first time helped many people establish credit scores for the first time get their first business loans we provide a suite of different immigration loans that help people cover the cost of becoming citizens or um, renewing their daca status so you know, I think with, you know, everything flowing from those values and that, that place of strength, we've been able to, you know, help people create the change that they're, they're hoping to have in their life. That is so, in a way, unfortunately, unique way of thinking about social change work, right? I think that that's, I've never heard someone say, we're coming from a place of strength and where do we tap into the things that are already going well for a community and grow those. The equivalent in the work that we do, I think is, very much how do we shift in general the work of social justice um, or social change work, I should say, from a charity-focused lens to a justice-focused lens, right? It's like, how do we step away from this like handout mentality or like let's fill in the gaps for people to how do we take a community that has strengths and things that they are uniquely doing well and kind of bringing to the world and elevate that? And how can we be allies to them? So I think that's just so cool and a framework that I'm certainly going to continue to hold for myself when I'm doing the work that I'm doing. So I think that's amazing. And I'm just very grateful that y'all are taking that approach in this space. So specifically the zero interest loan model, has this been around for a while? Is this something relatively new uh, as a mechanism for social change um, in particular? Curious to hear a little bit more about the background on, on that. Well, I guess, I mean, I would start with saying, you know, zero interest loans have been around for millennia. Um, I, I'll avoid the history lesson. You know, even today in some religious communities, charging of interest is, is you know, still seen as taboo. But, you know, furthermore, there's also a global practice that exists all over the world that goes by many different names. At MAF, we call it lending circles. But in Mexico, it's known as a tanda. In the Philippines, known as a paluagan and many, many other other names across the globe. But basically, it's an idea of a group coming together to lend and borrow money with each other. And it's very common in many immigrant communities in the U.S. So, you know, at MAF, you know, in the earliest days of our work, we saw that this was happening 
all over the, you know, in our neighborhood, it was very common. And so the idea going back to building on strengths is like, how do we give people credit for this? They're already doing it. It's already working. Um, you know, this is bona fide financial activity, but because it's informal, no one's, no one's building a credit score that way. So in that sense, you know, this idea is very, very old and, you know, math certainly did not come up with it. All we did was recognize it, formalize it, and then get people credit for that, for that work that's already happening. That's so cool. Actually, as you were speaking, my grandpa is writing a book on Islamic finance, which is one of these religious communities that doesn't believe in interest. Uh, so it is actually a discussion that happens a lot in my household, which is really interesting. But yeah, you're, you're totally right. This is something that has existed for ages. And I think it's really cool that y'all have just built a particular infrastructure around it. So tell us a little bit about your specific role at MAF. What is it that you currently do? I know you've had many roles, worn many hats and kind of grown through the organization. Would love to hear a little bit more about your journey personally through MAF. So, you know, I feel really lucky that MAF is a place where just in general, curiosity and passion are rewarded. That's a good thing to look for. And when I originally joined MAF, I was in a partnership role. So I was doing partner management work with other nonprofits that were implementing lending circles in their community. And I loved that work. I came on board at a time when we were really growing our partnership network rapidly. And that was that was a really fun time to get in. We would go across the country doing road shows, meeting nonprofits, and really enjoyed the work. And as this network was you know, growing, we were bringing more, pe- more organizations into the fold. I felt like I kept seeing all these opportunities to just deepen the impact of the network as a whole. And voice that, you know, I voiced, you know, my, my ideas for how we could really like foster more of a community feel within this network. And the, you know, leadership heard that and said, great, do it, which is obviously, you know, exactly the response that you want. So I then stepped into a leadership role overseeing our partner network as a whole. And just, yeah, you know, really appreciated and and enjoyed that type of, you know, strategic work of thinking about how to deepen that impact. And, you know, a couple years later, there was an opening, an opportunity to step into the role of program director, which meant overseeing not only our partners, but also our local, you know, direct service work. And I was able to step into that role. And that's, yeah, that's where I've been for, for the last uh, almost four years now. And there's been a, tons of evolution. Um, I mean, COVID has thrown us for a huge loop. You know, about two years ago, we shifted our focus from providing loans to providing cash assistance grants because that's what people needed. And we knew that when the first shelter in place orders hit, loans were not relevant in that moment. So, been a you know a tremendous amount of learning we you know what started as a relatively small cash assistance fund ballooned into a 40 million dollar fund that we were able to distribute to over 60,000 folks across the country so lots and lots of growth and 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 learning and evolution that's amazing and a kind of fundamental basic question that i'm curious so how is map structured is it uh, a nonprofit is it like is money cycling in and out? Like how do y'all sustain this fund and what does that sort of look like on a basic level? We are a nonprofit. So we rely on uh, mostly private 
grants and donations. We do receive um, some government funding as well. And we have, you know, a very, very small amount of earned income, but for the most part, we have a pretty traditional nonprofit funding apparatus that enables us to do our work. Amazing. I love that. And sort of in between all of these things that you've been up to at uh, MAF for the last couple of years, it also sounds like you got an MBA. So talk to us a little bit about what made you kind of decide to, to get the MBA. Did that have an impact on your trajectory, do you think? And also curious to get your thoughts on if you felt pushed into more traditional for-profit spaces while in that MBA environment and how you navigated that too. Yeah, I did. I did. So I was, you know, at a point where I was feeling like I was missing some hard skills and I wanted to add more skills and, you know, to what I brought to bear and was really going back and forth between master's in public policy, master's in public administration and MBA. And, you know, ultimately I landed on an MBA and I think that it's, you know, it's a it's a road less frequently traveled in the, you know, social justice space. But I think the skills that you get out of it are so relevant. You have to do a little bit of translation. You have to do a little bit of adaption. Um, you know, everything that you're learning, you have to, you know, take in with a little bit of skepticism so you can apply it to a different context. But, you know, I can confidently say that I am so much better at my job having having been through that you know, the training that you get out of an MBA. And, you know, I think it's it's not always the easiest path. You know, I know you asked, was I pushed into more traditional for-profit spaces? And I think, you know, I think, yes, like that's, you know, that's the current of MBA programs. Folks are, you know, driving, you know, there are a lot of folks that you're with are on a path towards consulting or product management. And, you know, you have to really carve out your own space. I knew every single person at my business school that was interested in social impact, (laughs) you know, you have to seek them out. You have to cultivate those relationships. You have to cultivate your own spaces and really stick to that. And, you know, sometimes it's challenging. Um, You know, there are moments where you feel like there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance going on and, you know, there's just not that spirit of activism that you might get in other spaces. I think that, on the whole, I would love for more folks in the economic mobility space in just nonprofit work in general to get MBAs because I think those skills are so powerful in terms of being able to uh, interpret data, you know, provide strategic recommendations, you know, lead and manage teams. I think that, you know, those building blocks are so critical, but you you really do have to carve out your own path. Yeah, I think building community, building that like solidarity of you're going to be in that, that minority of people who are not going after the McKinsey job after your MBA program is so powerful. And that's, I think, generally true in social impact work, right? If you can find people who align with your values, who are going to support you, who are kind of going through it with you, it's much easier to kind of stay the course and also have people who can tell you you're burnt out, like not in a normal way, you need to take a step back. I think both ends of that spectrum are true in terms of the kind of the reasons you need community in social change work. I talk about this, I feel like every third episode of, you know, particularly MBA programs in grad school, but I think you've really reinforced this idea of go with a clear goal, go kind of grounded in what you're hoping to gain from it, build a community of people who are going to help you achieve those goals and know that there will be some undercurrents strongly trying to push you one direction, but you can kind of, you can stay that course I'd love to hear just kind of as we close out this conversation, when you think about, 
economic mobility. You mentioned at the beginning of the episode, obviously it is layered and there's so much going on in this ecosystem. But just curious, are there other organizations or nonprofits that are innovating in this space that you think are really exciting right now, places you would recommend people check out that you're feeling really inspired by? Any ideas there, recommendations? Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's so much great work going on right now. Um, I think at sort of like a national level, if you want to kind of think about a lay of the land of, you know, what's happening out there, I think Prosperity Now is a great place to look. Um, the Urban Institute, uh, PolicyLink does just incredible research, you know, at a national level. Those are great places to check out. And then, I mean, in every, I feel like there's so much great work happening at the local level too. That's oftentimes where I think, you know, the really innovative stuff can take place. So movements in LA to legalize street vending. I mean, there's cooperative housing right now. I mean, there's just so much innovative work just happening in in all corners. Yeah. My last conversation with someone we were talking about, there's a temptation to think nationally or even like go abroad to work in social change work when there is always so so much going on in your local communities and taking the time to get to know what's happening in your own backyard is critically important and it can be so exciting. So I think that totally sounds like it applies here as well, which makes all sorts of sense. Any final pieces of advice for folks who want to start dipping their toe into this world, trying to get their you know radar up of what's happening in the space, whether it's newsletters you subscribe to or thought leaders that you admire, things like that? Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of thought leadership, Angela Glover Blackwell, the founder of PolicyLink is just absolutely amazing. I would I would recommend checking her out just in terms of, you know, really getting a deep understanding of issues surrounding inequality. I mean, Robert Reich is amazing. And, you know, a final piece of advice, I would just say, try the work on, you know, I, I, I really am a firm believer in trying things on. And I think they're great. Part of this work is that there is so much happening at a local level where, you know, if you want to experience it, see it firsthand, there are many opportunities to do so. Amazing. Elena, thank you again so much. I learned a lot from this conversation. I think that there is a lot of gems here and particularly your point of thinking about how do you strengthen communities, not from a place of they have a deficit that you need to fill, but rather how do you elevate the things that they're already doing so well and learning from them and that cultural humility. I think that's something I'm going to be thinking about for a while. Um, So thank you again and look forward to having another conversation in the future. Well, thank you. This has been really fun. If you have any questions, any feedback, any messages you want to send me about the podcast, Second Day or anything else, you can email me at mariam at secondday.org. That's Mariam spelled M-A-R-I-A-M at second day. That's second day with two Ds dot O-R-G. Have a wonderful two weeks and I will talk to you all again soon. The Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast is brought to you by Second Day, a 501c3 organization fighting to make social impact careers more accessible to all by dismantling inequitable talent pipelines into mission-driven industries. To learn more, go to secondday.org. I'd like to thank my producer, Fia Luongo, for her incredible work in making this episode possible. Music used in this podcast is titled Blessed Time by Ketza and can be found on the free music archive under the Creative Commons license.